Now, uh, before I jump into our text, we're going to be looking at the last four verses of 1 John chapter 5, beginning with verse 18. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles there or get your smartphone app ready uh, for the last four verses. But I just, before I jump in, I, I just have to say thank you. Um, some of you have been watching the prayer chain, but my wife had knee surgery this week and she's at home uh, this morning with the knee up on the pillows and, and all iced down. And I just so want to say, say thanks for, uh, for all the wonderful care and acts of kindness that have been done by this congregation. I mean, uh, Lynn Ellis showed up within minutes after surgery with this, this ice machine that circulates cold water to keep the swelling down. And, and, uh, and, and people have showed up with flowers and with like a ton of food and desserts. And every time I open the refrigerator, the food is just starting to, you know, starting to kind of crowd out everything else. I had to put the milk out on the counter today and, you know, to make room for all the food. And, and it makes me, it, it seriously makes me question, is it really about your kindness or about you just your lack of trust that I know how to cook anything <laughs> for my wife? I, no, really, I, 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 I trust that when she's back next week, she'll tell you that I, I did my job well. I'm trying to make an A, uh, but I just want to say, uh, Benders, you get an A plus for caring for us. It's really been cool um, that, uh, you know, that um, you care for the pastor who a lot of times is just trying to show up and take care of you, and y'all really taking care of us. That's really neat, and so thank you so much. Okay, so, so we're going to center our attention on these last four verses. Now, John is in the home stretch, and the theme of uh, the, these closing paragraphs is, is confidence. We've been talking about, for about the last three or four weeks, about, about this confidence that we have, this assurance that we have, this boldness in our life as followers of Christ. Um, and, and it is my belief that no matter what the circumstances of your life this morning, that God would want you to walk out of this place this morning full of confidence and boldness in your life. You believe that? Based on what the Word of God is going to teach us this morning, okay? Now, we have said from the very beginning, as we have looked at first John, that, that John had one of his purposes was to comfort those who were being disturbed, particularly by false teachers and who were leading people astray, leading them from from simple faith and belief in the Christ crucified and resurrected. So, so he was... He was intending to comfort those who were disturbed. At the same time, he's seeking to disturb those who have gotten too comfortable. Because some of us have gotten too comfortable. And we needed to take a look at these vital signs. We needed to check out and make sure that our faith was the real deal. And so John has given us these three reoccurring tests. There's a, there, there's a, a doctrinal test or a belief test because what we believe really does matter. Because our lives are founded on it. No matter what you say, we will act on what we really believe. And if we really believe something, it will change our actions. That's the second thing. That's the moral test. That if we believe what, the, who Jesus really is, then we're going to keep his commands. We're going to follow his voice. We're going to follow after him. And we're going to become more and more like him in our lives. That's the second of the reoccurring tests or vital signs. And then the third is the relational test. Do we love? Do we love with God's kind of love, a supernatural kind of love poured into us, the agape that, you know, that, is, uh, that does not hold on to hate and grudges and, and unforgiveness, but 
forgives and loves and seeks the benefit, seeks to set the self in its proper perspective so that so that others are lifted up and cared for and served. So, so, um, so now we come to um, these last verses, and I want us to review for just a moment. So we're going to go to verse 13, because this is the verse where John basically states what his purpose for writing the letter really is. In verse 13, he says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence, and the word there in the original language of the New Testament is parousia, parousia. This is the confidence that we have toward him. Now, confidence, it's not cockiness or arrogance, and it's not complacency, you know, on the other hand, right? This parousia, this confidence that we have, it, 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 the original word comes from the combination of two words, pan for everything or all things, and, and recess, which is to speak or to pour forth speech or to proclaim. And so the, the word here, parousia, means to, to be open, to be frank, to speak in a very bold and confident way without ambiguity or, or with full assurance that what we are saying is true. Okay, so... So that's where the word starts out. Now it comes to mean it comes to mean confidence and boldness and clarity in the manner of one's life. As it's as it's expressed in the life, not just in speech but in the life. And John is careful to use this word in a very insightful way. John uses it 13 times. In his writings, most of the time in his gospel, the gospel of John. And he uses it, note this, exclusively to describe the open, the frank, and the, you know, the bold and unambiguous communication or conversations that he has with believers. With the circle of believers and most often with the disciples. As H.C. Hahn in his Dictionary of the New Testament Theology points out, to the world, Jesus spoke in paroimia, in parables, didn't he? He told stories, made up metaphors that could not be understood without faith. It left people thinking and pondering until finally the truth maybe would begin to settle on them and they might believe. But to his disciples, he spoke boldly. He spoke Plainly, he spoke assuredly, unambiguously to them, John says. And so it sets up this tension between the parousia and the, in the, in the, in the paromia, the parables. This is so distinctive about John. If you read, you read this letter or you read the Gospel of John, John is very much into dualism of contrasting life and death, of, of light and darkness, of love and hate, truth versus the lies. And now, parousia, bold, confident, assured statement of faith. 
or metaphor and parable, which hopefully do eventually lead to faith. You understand John's purpose in setting up this kind of dualism in the gospel? One reason, because it demands a decision on our part. It forces a choice, a choice that can only be resolved by faith. Only by faith. Now, there is one instance in John's gospel, chapter 7, verse 13, where some of those curious seekers and would-be disciples of John tells us did not speak openly, did not speak boldly or confidently because of their fear of the Jews or the religious leaders. But you know what I find interesting? You know, in the impartation of the Holy Spirit into the fledgling church in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, we find the parousia all over the place in those early texts in Acts. Five times in noun form, seven times in verbal form, the early church with the power of the Holy Spirit is boldly and confidently and clearly and unambiguously stating their faith, their trust in Jesus. The Savior and Lord. It's cool. This is a great word. See, God wants us to walk out of here today confident. He wants us to walk out of here boldly. Not cocky and arrogant in relationship to the world. And not complacent. For dear God, there's no room in a world like this for complacency. But walking out confidently and assuredly and boldly. And so he gives us, in these last, these last paragraphs, five things uh, to be confident about, okay? Now, the first two are reviewed. Confidence, number one, is that we have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know, you may know that you have eternal life. Now, keep in mind, this is... John's statement of his purpose, and he is literally saying everything that I've said before in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and the first, you know, the first 12 verses of chapter 5, I have said, I have, you know, I have basically organized so that you can come to know that you know, that you can be confident that Jesus being in your life, that you have eternal life. Okay. Having Christ alone secures, John says, for living. For living a full and abundant life. I'm reminding you that eternal life is not just what is ahead after we die. Eternal life starts right now. The evidence for it is in the, 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 the next four things he says he is confident about because all four of them apply to life in this world where we are today right now but john is saying belief and faith in christ secures us for for all of eternity not only in this life in this life but in the life to come there's a second confidence confidence number two that our prayers will be answered. Now, this is what Chad talked about last week. 
And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Confidence in answered prayer. Okay. That's the review. All right. Now we come to confidence number three. Verse 18. Our text for today. And we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Now, folks, this is the last time in John's letter that he will use the imagery of new birth. You remember, we stated earlier that Paul uses the language of adoption. Paul in Romans 8 says, the spirit of adoption has, you know, has entered into us and we cry out, Abba, Father, the most intimate and personal name for, for uh, God the Father, for Daddy. Because we are adopted, Paul says. But John uses the imagery over and over in, in his gospel and in this letter of new birth. Of us becoming part of the family of God and knowing God intimately as Father by virtue of the fact that we have been born again. And Chad mentioned last week, uh, I think it's Walter Weingrand that, that, that uses this term, uh, that there are birthmarks for the Christian. Every Christian is left with birthmarks, if you will. And so, uh, so after hearing Chad preach last week, the first thing I did this week was sit down and just go through 1 John and write down all the birthmarks. You ready? I'm going to share them with you, all right? You want to see them? Okay, let's read them together. Birthmarks. Those who are born of God, first of all, keep His commands. Second, those who are born of God walk in the same way that Jesus walked. How are you doing so far? Okay, all right. Number three, those who are born of God love sacrificially and do not hate, do not hold, to, hold on to hatred or to a grudge. Those who are born of God love the Father and not the world. That's the one that Dustin preached on a while back. Those who are born of God confess the Son of God and have Him in their life. Those who are born of God do what is right. Those who are born of God do not continually practice sin. Those born of God have the Holy Spirit in them, the Holy Spirit living in them, and they listen, they listen, they are attentive to the Word of God. Those who are born of God, now these are all, there's 13 of these in 1 John. Go back and look them up for yourself. Just, it's only five chapters. You can, you can do the research. You know, if you can't write fast, that's fine. Just go look for yourself. Those who are born of God believe Jesus is their Messiah. He's their king. He's their ruler. He rules their life. We talked long and hard about that one, did we not, Chad? Those born of God overcome the world. They are overcomers. They are victorious. Those who are born of God, believe Jesus is the Son of God. And last, here's the last one that we just read. Those who are born of God know they are protected 
from the evil one. That last one. If you thought what it means to be the child of God, let me show you a picture of my granddaughter. That's Ryan. I snuck up on her this, this week while she was watching uh, Duck Dynasty. No. It's not Duck Dynasty. She was watching, what is it? Wild Kratts? Wild Kratts. Yeah, she was watching Wild Kratts. And she is sporting a, um, a new look. Have you noticed? Big purple cast on her left arm. Happened a couple of weeks ago. You see, our kids uh, decided to summer one last time in Chicago, Jill and Sam, and before moving to Norman, Oklahoma, last weekend. They moved in twice last weekend. I got to help them move twice last weekend. That's a story for another sermon, and it'll take a while. They stayed in Chicago so they could revisit all those favorite places, favorite spots around the city, uh, and, and also, I'm sure, no doubt, to escape the summer heat here. Well, there's this huge playground. If you know Chicago, there's this huge playground right on Lake Michigan, right there in downtown Chicago. And, uh, and they had this huge spiraling slide. And... Uh, the place is just packed with kids, and Ryan is climbing a series of, of stairs to the top of the slide, and, and, and the, the parents are nearby watching for her to appear at the top of the slide when, when she falls about five feet off of the ladder, and Father Sam hears her cry out. Now, he can separate her voice from every other voice of a hundred kids that are on that playground. You get that picture? They're all running around and, you know, screaming and laughing and playing. And he knows instantly her voice. And he also knows instantly it's a distress call that she's hurt. So a short time later, Jill is texting pictures to us of little Ryan sitting on a gurney in the hospital ER, smiling and showing off her, her new purple cast. And here's the line in Jill's text in her description of how it happened that caught my attention. She wrote this, I've never seen Sam move so fast in all of my life. Why? Because he's a loving father. Now you think about what it means for you and I to be children of God. And let that picture, let that just settle on you for a minute. You think he knows where you are? You think he knows what's going on in your life? You think he cares about what's going on in your life? You think he doesn't hear? You think he's not protecting you? Look at that verse one more time. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, the first thing John says is 
is that you and I share in Christ's victory over sin. Because he was victorious, he has given us the power, his power to overcome sin. Salvation is a threefold process. We sometimes discuss it like this, you know, salvation, sanctification, you know, which is the whole growing up kind of process for the Christian, and then glorification, when we when in the future we go to heaven, past, and the past is he forgives our sin, he removes the penalty of sin in, in our past. In the present, he has broken and he has taken away the power of sin over us. And in the future, he will take away the presence of sin completely when we are with him in glory. But, but for now, John is saying he has broken the power of sin. And so those who are born of God, those who are in relationship with him, first of all, share in his, in his glorious victory over sin. They have received his power, and they do not go on sinning continually. Their, their lifestyle is not that of, of continually being drugged down into the pit of sin again and again and again. Why? Because they, they realize the power of sin has been broken over them. Sin's power has been broken. And secondly, that Satan can't touch them. That's huge. Satan can't touch us. Look at the wording. But he who is born of God protects him. Tereo is the Greek word there. It it literally communicates the idea that he keeps, he attends to attentively and carefully. He keeps guard over us. That's the, the word. And, and look, and later in verse 18, it says Satan cannot touch or does not touch us. The word for touch is hapto. hapto. And hapto with a negative modifier means that he is not able to touch. He is not able to grab hold. He is not able to fasten himself onto. He is not able to kindle or to set fire to is another derivative of the word. John is basically saying that the enemy can't lay a finger on those who believe. And it's perfect tense. So it just means It ain't ever going to happen because it's perfect tense in the verb. Chad, I think, references, I don't know if it was last week or in a sermon previously, but Luke chapter 22. There's this incredible conversation that Jesus has with Simon Peter on the night that he's betrayed. Okay, Luke chapter 22. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And of course, Peter should have kept his mouth shut after that, and he didn't. But what are the implications here? Satan has demanded the privilege of sifting you Satan has to ask permission? (laughs) Exactly. Because of Christ's conquest over sin, his death and his resurrection, you see, Satan is on a short leash. Satan does not have free reign in your life. He can't touch you. He can't do anything without permission 
of the Father. Now, the Father does grant Satan permission to tempt Peter, does he not? And Peter falls. Right? And later he's restored, like many of us have known that pattern in our life again and again and again. But ultimately, he cannot grab hold of us. He cannot hold us in place. He cannot, he cannot lay a finger on us. We are secure in him. So would that make you confident? That helps me big time. Number four, fourth confidence, our place in the world. That now we understand our place in the world. Look at verse 19. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We are confident about our place in the world. But we express no confidence in the world. And in the world's system. Or the world's ways. Didn't Jesus say to his disciples. Guys. I'm sending you back into the world. But you're to be in the world. But not of the world. Why? Because you are from me. You come from me. You've been sent by me. And so the Christian is one who lives in confidence even in a world that is in the grasp or lies under the power of the evil one. We can live confidently no matter what the world is doing, no matter what society, the direction society goes. We can live fearlessly, boldly, unambiguously, and clearly for him. Even in a world like that. The world, John says, lies in the power of the evil one. Now, this is a great word. It's the word, it's the word kami. If you're a golfer like me, and, and I don't wish that on anyone here, by the way, but if you're a golfer like me, you hit into the rough quite often, up into the weeds. And have you ever walked up, you know, and looking for your ball in the rough and it's down buried in the grass and it takes 15 to 20 minutes for you to ever find that ball? That's why Don Jones does not like to play golf with me. I'm saying because he stays in the fairway and I stay in the rough. And, and, and so when you're out there in the deep weeds, you, you know, you call that a bad lie, right? And that's exactly what John is saying here. The world is in a bad lie. It's underneath. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's an unhittable lie. The literal Greek word there comes from the picture of a baby that is laid in a crib, an infant, a newborn laid in a crib. And how much moving around do they do? Right? You lay them down either on their tummy or on their back and they just lay there because they can't really, at that age and stage of life, they can't move. 
And that's where the etymology or the beginning of that word came. And what John is saying, that the world lies there. The world cannot move. The world basically, you know, even if it wants to or thinks about it, it can't move. It's, it's, it's caught in a bad lie. But we're not. Are we? And so we know that we have a place in the world. That we are to be light in the midst of contrasting darkness that we're to walk into the world not to be fearful you know what i'm saying not to build walls not to not to retreat into the church and just build up our walls uh, you know separating us from society but but to engage to be to be to serve and to it's it's our vision statement to serve and to engage our lives in relationships outside of this body to love them and serve them for Jesus so that we can that we can bring them to faith in Christ and then the end stands for nurture nurture them in faith disciple them in faith and and all in the midst of it we're trusting God for the result because it's really where he leads us how he leads us and what he's doing in their lives that matters We're confident about our place in the world. One last thing. And we are confident that the Christian life is the real life. We are confident that the Christian life, we are bold in our assertion. We are, you know, this is clear to us that the Christian life is the real life. Verse 20 and verse 21. And we know that the Son of God has come. And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In the son, Jesus Christ. That he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is a great sentence. I mean, I love this verse because John gives us a triple whammy here, you know, in a sense. Three different words for knowing. He starts out with the word, the word oikomen. He starts out literally saying in, in verse 19, and we know, and, it, and, it's, and it's, it's the word that, 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 that translates we see and we perceive. We have seen and we have heard for ourselves. It's the same word he uses back in John chapter 1, Verse 1, the very, one of the very first words that he uses, that which we have seen with our own eyes and touched with our own hands. He says, and we know, we see and we perceive, we see and that we perceive that the Son of God has come. It's a fact, the Son of God has come. And then he has given us, here's the second word for know, he's given us understanding. Dianoia, the power, the capacity to use reason, to use understanding and intellect. The people that think you have to, to be a Christian, you've got to blow your brains out, do not know what Christian faith is about. He gives us reason. He gives us understanding. He gives us what we need, capacity to know, so that we may, and here's the third time he uses a word for know, so that we may know, and it's from gnosis, it's gnosko, so that we may Know that we know. And in 1 John, it means an intimate and personal knowledge of. Which is exactly what he says in the next phrase. So that we may know 
facts and information, we may know him, him, him. And then John uses his favorite adjective <laughs> three times in this verse. The Greek word for true is alethes. But here in, you know, in this letter and, and also in the gospel, John uses the word alethinas, alethinas, which translates real, real. Our faith is real. When John's gospel points out to us, or this letter points out to us, that Jesus is the true or the real bread, or he's the real light of the world, or the true vine, or the real shepherd, as opposed to, let's say, baker's bread, or a farmer's vine, or a shepherd who's just sitting up on the side of a hill. You know, listen carefully. What you and I see are shadows of that which he is the real substance, John says. The baker's bread is just a shadow of what real bread is, and he is the real bread. The light you see when you flip on your switch, that's a shadow of the real light. You know what I'm saying? We're told in the book of Revelation that there won't be any sun or moon to light the sky in heaven because the glory of the Lord will fill the place. It will be lit up. Because the real light will shine there. The true light will shine there. <sighs> okay, we got to quit. And then John throws in, after these five confidences, a quick exhortation. Stay away, be on your guard against idols. What is an idol? It's something that's dead <laughs> versus... Jesus, who's alive, it's something it's, that's, that's false as compared to what is true. And what John is just really saying is that you must keep watch. And the verb there means to stay awake all night if you have to. Keep watch. That you keep yourself from idols, from that which is artificial, that which is unreal. That which is fake. And hold fast to what is true. Okay, let's review. Five confidences as we close First John. And we'll be somewhere else next week, so join us, okay? Revelation 1. First, we are confident that we have eternal life in the Son of God. Second, that our prayers are being heard and they will be answered. Third, we are confident that we share in his victory over sin, that we are not held captive to sin. We can live obediently and Satan can't touch us. And fourth, confident of our calling and our place in the world. And number five, confident that this life we're living the Christian life is the real deal. Let's pray.